Are you the coming one? That's the question we heard in our gospel lesson. Is Jesus the one? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one first mentioned to Adam and Eve after the fall when God cursed the serpent? Do you remember this? God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And sometimes in some churches you will see a um, painting or an image of a crucifixion. And quite often underneath the cross is a serpent being smushed. And this is the picture of the fulfillment of that prophecy. That Christ on his cross defeated sin, Satan, and death, the serpent who first helped to get us into this problem. John Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him this question. Please keep in mind, we often don't think about this, but please keep in mind that John has known Jesus at this point. He's known Jesus, his cousin, for all of his life. The first time that he was in the presence of the incarnate Lord was when Mary was pregnant, and so was Elizabeth. And John leapt in the womb, you know, gave a sturdy kick is the impression I get, when Jesus in Mary's womb came into the house. Put into that perspective of cousins, it sounds different, don't you think? You stop for a moment. You, hey, cuz, are you the one we've all been waiting for? Because this is getting weird. You can imagine John thinking, wow, I knew there was something strange about my cousin. The only time he ever got in trouble was when I made sure he got in trouble. Right? Or he got in trouble for being too good. That was always my problem. So this is rather an important development in John's life. He's been out wearing camel skins, eating locusts and honey. You ever tried that? And he's been preaching in the wilderness. He's been baptizing people. He's been saying, repent. And he's watching what Jesus is doing. He's hearing about it. His disciples are reporting Uh, to him because he's in prison. That's why he sends his disciples. And you can imagine his wheels are turning and he's like, all right, I know there's something going on here. I'm talking about preparing the way. Maybe Jesus, cousin Jesus, is the guy. Like, whoa. He's like, wait a minute. This could be it. And so he he says, look, guys, go ask this guy Jesus Are you it? Are we waiting for someone else? Or are you it? Your cousin. The disciples say, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, I'd like us all to do a little thought process here. It's not going to be hard. It's not going to be mind games. I'd like you to all think about our current context in our culture today. And think about, okay, is anyone asking this question? Are people waiting around for the Messiah? And I would say most of us would probably see the obvious answer is no. This is not our current culture. We're in a post-Christian time in our culture. 
with the world sporting a rather negative view of Christianity and all things churchy. It used to be when I grew up that, you know, being a Christian was kind of a, a mark in your favor. And then, and then it kind of became, well, yeah, it's not a mark in your favor, but it's not a mark against you. It's a period of, I think, about 10 years where it was kind of neutral. And then about last 10-ish years, it definitely seems to be a mark against you to claim the name of Christ. Not only are the people in our current culture not looking for Jesus, it seems, but they'd rather most things to do with Jesus just disappear off the scene. If you want to have a faith, that's fine. Keep it between you and God, you and your head, you and your weirdness, and just don't bring it into the public square. Don't bring it out here where someone has to deal with you. You can imagine how hard that is for me when I wear a cassock around town. Now, mind you, it is California. So before I, used, before I always made sure I had a cross on, people would say, so you're a cleric. Are you Muslim? Buddhist? What are you? I thought, okay, wearing a cross. Now wearing a cross at all times. Yet, I am challenged, particularly this last week, to rethink this response by all of us. In my recent travels, and boy, did I travel. I was waiting in lines to get on planes, and I was always group number five out of five. I'm like, oh, my text is telling me it's time, you know, the airline sent me a text to check in. That's nice. I hit the button and it checks, my, checks me right in. The problem is they do that after everyone else checks in. And this, my last flight, group number five, I'm watching all these groups go ahead. I'm standing because I'm so tired of sitting. I'm standing up in group one, group two. All right, all those are group three. Okay. All those are group four. I'm like, all right. There's only 10 people. Can I just get in line behind them so I don't feel lonely? And then I walked all the way to the very back of the plane and sat down at the very back seat, which does not recline at all. And I was there like three times on my flights this week. I'm really glad to be home. In my recent travels, I met a number of rather secular people who were curious, who came up and talked with me. I was with, in Manhattan, I was with uh, my friend, Father Mike Fitzpatrick. Some of you will remember him. He was here 11, 12 years ago visiting when uh, Brother Sam was our monk. And uh, I came up to his apartment, his rectory, which sits on the 11th floor in the corner. Three bedrooms, three bath, living room, dining room, kitchen. Okay, the kitchen's small. And a deck almost as big as the apartment. So like 11 story up, I'm like, oh, this is fun. He's like, it's really cold out here. Yeah, but this is fun. I mean, it's like 25 feet by 20 feet with another ligand wrapping around the sides. I was dancing, taking pictures. I'll show you pictures. Um, and uh, I said, let's get the boys out here. Come on, buy some cigars. And he says, it's too cold. He's, so he sat inside and I sat outside and smoked a cigar. And he sat inside and he was in the warmth because that apartment, there's no thermostat. Just they heat the building and it's, it's like 85 degrees in there. And so I'm sitting outside right in the doorway. I'm fine. The hot air is rushing out and I feel it. 
So it was a crack up. And one older gentleman in Manhattan came up to me while I was working on my com computer in that same cigar shop where I got the cigar. And by the time he was done, he said, well, I guess I just needed to confess these things to a priest. So I told him the name of the priest that he needed to talk with who lived here. And I said, the church is seven blocks that way on 43rd. Amazing, the curious comments, the discussion that I had in a place that is not known for its high value of church. I met a young man, part of our church in Manhattan, who realized that he could be a part of growing that parish just by inviting friends to join him at the liturgy. Because I met with a group of them and we kind of talked, uh, how are we going to revitalize this church? That's the idea. The church has been around 150 years. It's got a new building. It's got, you know, this other church saved it from financial disaster because the vestry embezzled millions of dollars. <laughs> and so he managed to save it financially. Now it's time to, to revitalize it and grow it. And uh, one, the treasurer is still in prison, actually. That happened 10 years ago. <laughs> wow. Um, He said, well, I could probably bring three or four people with me most Sundays. Why don't you? Oh, I'll try. It's, it's so funny. How many people never think that they can make a difference between a church succeeding and failing as an institution? I met a young professional on the plane yesterday, only 22 years of age. Already has a bachelor's, a master's, and full-time employment. I was like, whoa! And her interest in how to live a good life, and her looking for real answers to life's tough questions was almost palpable. She just asked great questions of a priest. She was raised in a Unitarian thing. Church is what they say, but that's no church I know. I said, well, you're talking to a Trinitarian here. And she's laughing. She says, well, as far as I can tell, Unitarianism is just for people who need a motivational speech on Sunday mornings. I said, well, that makes sense. I think, frankly, that many people are looking for Jesus, particularly at this time in the history of America. But I don't think most of them know that it's Jesus they're looking for. So many people are desperate for meaning in their lives. The existential crisis of our age is that young people have been sold an absolute lie. Go ahead, you can make anything you want to of your life in terms of philosophy, religion, etc. And they hear that, and then they try that, and they find that their life is rather completely empty and meaningless. They have no relationships that help them. They don't have any traditions to hold on to. My friends, those same people are not just in Manhattan or in Asheville or in Pittsburgh or in Grove City or in Black Mountain, which are all the places I went. And we never made it out of Manhattan. My friend lives in a 10 block radius, actually three by 10, because everything he needs is right there including a really nice pub, but the music was so loud. These same people live here. 
people that are hungry for meaning, for tradition, for life that has purpose and relationships that matter. Jesus answers John's question this way. To the disciples, he says, go and tell John, cousin John, go and tell him the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He's quoting Isaiah. Quite often when we just read that passage, we don't realize it's a quote. He's quoting Isaiah where the prophet tells of the coming day when your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the promised one. I'm the one promised first to Adam and Eve and then throughout the history of humanity and particularly to the chosen people, the Jews. I'm here, says Jesus, and the kingdom is now. It has arrived, as you can see. That's what he's saying. This next week, my friends, we celebrate the coming of the king. The question has to be, are we ready to shout it from the rooftops? Are we ready to invite our neighbors, our friends, our community to join us in worshiping this king? There's no time like the present. Let's help our communities find Jesus, the promised one. And no, you don't have to beat them over the head with the Bible. And if they say no thanks, hey, God's in charge of that. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring those people. It's our job to say, hey, he's here. And quite often, as St. Francis is rumored to have said, he probably didn't say it. Sometimes we shout loudest with our actions, with our love, with their invitation to join us in celebration in general, maybe outside of church. Eh, come join us for lessons and carols. It's great fun. It's traditional. It's, you know, you'll really like it. It's choral music. It's not rock and roll. And then we're going to eat fondue. And my sister makes a great caramel fondue. And Aiden makes this chocolate brandy one. He's been making it since he was 12. I always check to make sure he wasn't, you know... And then we have a couple cheese and some other people bring stuff. And then we, have, we also have that fondue where you stab the piece of meat and put it in the oil. Oh. There's no time like the present, my friends. Live a life that tells people the kingdom is here. Jesus is here. And we're going to celebrate his incarnation. And we're going to celebrate the kingdom that is still growing at this present time. Amen.